Welcome to The Rock's Podcast. If you like stories with happy endings, you'll love the book of Ruth. Four quick chapters that beautifully illustrate how God can take the hopeless and helpless and exalt them to a place of incredible honor. Ruth's story is our story. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through this remarkable book. It's been said that a coincidence is a small miracle where God wishes to remain anonymous. And so, yes, a lot of that goes on in this world. And even the unbelieving world, when something seems to come up unexpectedly that falls and fits right in place, even they like to acknowledge that there's some kind of um, presiding, mysterious force that's shaping and directing our lives. Usually they'll say something like, oh, everything happens for a reason, right? Well, you know, that happens all the time. We say it's a divine appointment because we know that the footsteps of our lives, those who are called according to his purposes, are directed. And so we know that God is in these random daily encounters. Uh, For example, 15 years ago, speaking of the anniversary, I picked up the phone looking for a hall, a place to rent. And I just called randomly uh, this place that was listed on a sheet of paper uh, by the Chamber of Commerce there in Sebastopol. And I called the number and I said, hey, I'm interested in uh, starting a church. And she said, so you saw the ad? And I said, no, I don't see an ad. I just went, walked into the Chamber of Commerce and got a sheet that says uh, halls for rent. And she goes, well, we've got an ad and we're looking for a small church to rent on Sundays. And I, and, and I said, oh, what a coincidence. You know? <laughs> and, and then she says something like, you know, well, everything happens for a reason. But if you stop to think about that, even if you're an atheist and you say that, Everything happens for a reason. Whose reason? Uh, If some force is um, controlling and orchestrating individual lives on a planet filled with 7 billion of us, to speak of the wisdom and the power and the omniscience that would have to go into something like that, well, you could only come up with one conclusion, that it's not the universe, but it is the God of the universe, amen? Well, these kinds of things, uh, the providence of God, that's what we call it, uh, is the point of, uh, one of the points anyway, of the book of Ruth and certainly the theme of chapter two, which we find ourselves looking at uh, this morning. That God's providence, that he is working invisibly behind the scenes in ordinary, everyday, so-called random encounters to care for us, to point us in the right direction, and we who are called according to his purpose. So Ruth and Boaz certainly fit in 
called according to God's purposes. Ruth, the poor and needy foreigner, Moabitess, who's now come to uh, find refuge there in Israel. Boaz, the wealthy landowner, the Jewish um, um, kind of hero in the story. Certainly God is all over these two, bringing them together. And that's what chapter two is about. And so when I say God's providence, I don't want to scare you off of throwing around some confusing theological term. God's providence really summed up really easily is that God is running the universe and watching over our lives. Now, we like to say when we really know God is at work, we like to say hey, God was really in it. He was really in this. And we know what we mean by that. But my question is, what is God not in <laughs> Right, I, I mean, in him we move and live and have our being and the fullness of him who fills everything according to his purposes. Come on. I mean, there's not much that God is not in. And it's his planet and his creation and his purposes prevail. And we're going to see that here in chapter two as we get um, Underway. Now, whenever we make random turns to the right or to the left at the end of some random street, uh, we sometimes find out that maybe that wasn't as random as we might have thought. Amen? Chapter two. <laughs> now, Naomi had this relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech her late husband, right? She's a widow, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, her daughter-in-law, also a widow, the Moabitess, says to her mother-in-law, let me go now that we've returned and we're poor and we're getting kind of hungry here. Somebody's got to do something, mom. Uh, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. Verse three. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters as it turned out. <laughs> what a coincidence. <laughs> Everything happens for a reason. Uh, okay. She finds herself working in the field belonging to this guy the relative who could save the day. Gee whiz, as it turned out, of all the fields in the world. Okay, I digress. Who was from the clan, clan related to them? Just then, Boaz arrives from Bethlehem. Well, just happened that he just arrived right at time there from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you, godly guy. The Lord bless you, back, they say. Uh, Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, whose young woman is that? The, the, four rep the foreman replied, she's the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. She says, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvester. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So we're just going to walk through bite-sized chunks this morning instead of reading the whole chapter and then walking through it. We'll just walk through it this way. And so the first, if you're taking notes, 
The first little heading is, of course, the so-called coincidence, okay? The so-called coincidence. So here in this really Old Testament love story, and that's what it is, we're calling it the story behind Christmas. Why? Because it leads us to Bethlehem. It's taking place in Bethlehem, but it's going to point you in a miraculous, like, open-jawed astonishment ending here that I'm trying not to give totally away, even though most of you know it, but hopefully you've forgotten it a little bit. So there'll be a little pow there, but it's got a nice ending. And so the love story is, of course, about this valiant uh, knight in shining armor, Boaz, who rescues a damsel in distress who is Ruth, the Moabitess. Every time it says the Moabitess, you need to pay attention because there's five times Ruth, the Moabitess, the Moabitess, the Moabitess. Can you believe it? She's from them. The terrorists, the vile and vulgar idolaters who kill their babies. She's one of them, and yet she's mingling really close to getting um, connected with one of the wealthier Jews in Bethlehem. And so... Of course, the love story doubles here as a story of Christ, who is our Boaz. We, the estranged foreigner to the covenants of God, without God, without hope in this world. But it just so happened that we heard the gospel and just so happens, the way it happened was pretty amazing. Almost like it was planned. <laughs> Almost like somebody was behind it, trying to weave things together for our good. That is what providence is. That he's in charge of things with a heart to providence, provi- providence to provide the care and the love that we need. And so uh, here we go. Now things are looking up. Verse one, love it. Love how uh, Samuel's recording this. Samuel's uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's the word of God. Uh, introduces to us this character. Makes the readers aware that there's someone in the town who can solve these two widows' problem. 10 long, hard, awful years of misfortune. And now it can all go away so easily because verse one says, by the way, there's this guy who's really close. He's even related to them and he's wealthy and he's the right man who could fix everything. But nobody knows it. And so now we're we're wondering the question, how are they going to meet, right? And so we're going to see that it just so happens. Well, well, why did they have 10 years of uh, misfortune? Well, most of it had to do with their own misstepping and trying to take matters in their own hands. Things got a little tight there with a famine. Well, you'll recall in the house of bread, that's what Bethlehem means. They live in the promised land in the house of bread where the bakers are on temporary leave because there's no bread. And so in a time of judges, when everybody was doing whatever they wanted to do, whatever seemed right in their own eyes, 
They left God's provision and the land of baked bread for Moab, the land of the enemy. You'll recall that Naomi was married to Elimelech and they had two boys. And they went to Moab. Moab, disgraceful origins. Where did Moab come from? Lot's incestuous relationship with one of his daughters. That's where it started, but it didn't end there. Disgusting practices. They served a God called Chemosh who required the firstborn to be thrown into his fires as worship for him. So both Ophrah and um, Naomi, uh, Ruth <laughs> have siblings who have been offered in the fires. Devastating impact on Israel. The Moabite women seduced Israeli men and 24,000 of them died in a plague. And the den- deadly enemies of Yahweh, they hated God's people. Who do you think hired Balaam? It was the Moabites. And so she, keep this in mind, she's one of them. Yes, she's got a change of heart, and that's the gospel, that you can be one of the estranged ones, one of the accursed ones, one of the ones who went looking for what only God provides in a, in a land that you shouldn't have ever been in. There is a way that seems right to a man. It, in the end, it leads to death, and that's exactly what happened. Elimelech, the husband, dies, and then the two Boys, marry the enemy, and they die. I mean, somebody should have said, hey, we see a pattern here. (laughs) You know, you take a misstep, the wages of sin is death. And, And sometimes you get an empty barrenness, or you'll always get some form of death, whether it's figurative or the real deal. And it was the real deal. So... You know how the story goes, so I can catch you up here. Uh, So Naomi gets word that the bakers are back in business in Bethlehem. Whoa, that's a lot of bees. (laughs) The bakers back in business in Bethlehem baking some bread. (laughs) Wow, it's good for breakfast. Not better, move on. Okay. And so God comes to the aid. He always does. She just, they just needed to wait and stay still and be part of the answer, but no. Okay, so she's, she's going to turn around to get the food, and, and sadly it wasn't because of her faith or her conscience because we see she's still a bitter woman. And so she has the two widow daughter-in-laws in tow, and they're from the wrong side of the tracks, Naomi's not in the mood for company or good deeds. She doesn't want to help them find Yahweh in the promised land. So she dissuades the first one, Orphra, but Ruth clings and says, listen, I've got a spark of faith here. I'm coming to faith with or without you, with your bad attitude. I want that God of yours. I want those people. I'm trading in this old life for the new. And Ruth says, okay, (laughs) Fine, come along with me. And she loves her, you know, but she just can't get over her, her own grief. And so uh, they arrive in Bethlehem. The townspeople are shocked to see the transformation in uh, Naomi's character. Naomi means sweetie pie, sweetie. And she said, stop calling me that. 
Call me Mara. Mara means little Miss Bitterness. <laughs> Whoa. So call me bitter. Now, because God has made me bitter. Whoa, she's in a bad place. So little does she know that God is setting her up using the dead ends in life, the losses and crosses, as the Puritans said, as a platform for which to show his love and his redemptive purposes always. Your worst day can turn out to be watch this moment where God shows up and says, I've got life. I've planned goodness not to harm you, to prosper you, to give you a hope and a future. Just watch what I can do. And if you don't think that he didn't practice what he preached, he put Jesus through that. Jesus was not having a good day on Good Friday. It was bad Friday for Jesus, but it was the platform, the cross and the death and the shame and the loss was for life and blessing and goodness. And that's God's pattern. And it's his pattern here in Ruth. It's his pattern in life. It's the pattern in the gospel. Just get used to it. That it doesn't mean God has turned his back on you. He says he's setting you up for success. And only with the eyes of faith can you look past that which is seen to the unseen from the temporal to the eternal. And that's what has to happen here, but they're not quite there yet. Let's take a closer look. All right, so we find out who this guy is, Boaz. Uh, he's going to make all the difference in the world. If only they could find each other in the story. Uh, in the Hebrew, the word means warrior. When he says he's, he's an upstanding, what does he call, call him? Uh, a man of standing. It was used of warriors. It was used for wealthy people, influential people, people with sterling character. So he, he's definitely a little bit of all of that. And he's the man of the hour. And, you know, it's all the more worth saying and uh, attention-grabbing to understand. He's doing all of this. The Lord bless you. He's an upstanding, godly, God-fearing, chivalrous man in the midst of an atmosphere of depravity. The judges was the darkest time in Israel's history. And yet, and, and what grace does it take? It's easy, my friends, to be on your best behavior today. It's Sunday, and you just went through beautiful worship, and everybody's looking at you, and everybody, 99.9 of us, want to please God and do the right thing and not let any unwholesome word come out of our mouth here. But when you're in the world, and everybody else has got the unwholesome words out of their mouth, and everybody else is doing their own thing, and you're surrounded, and you still maintain and walk in the light, yet surrounded by darkness. That's this dude. That's a real deal believer. That's a noteworthy person. And so he's there, swimming upstream against the current. That's Boaz. And so he's near, but the, the question is, how are they ever going to meet? Well, I'm glad you're asking that because it just so happened one day that Ruth wants to make the move, right? <laughs> Where's Naomi? 
Where's Naomi? She's like the mom. She's supposed to be saying, hey, you know, you, you, how much do you weigh? 105. Oy vey. You're getting a little thin. You know, maybe we should do a little, uh, you know, begging or something. Go out there, right? But it's not her. Why? Why isn't it mom? Because she's so filled with bitterness. She can't see. When you're filled with the, your self-absorbed bitterness, you don't see, you, you're not looking up. I love one writer said, pity parties blind you to the rescue because you've got to focus on me, myself, and I. And the answer isn't in me, myself, and I. It's in a different trinity. It's in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Yeah, so the reason why she's not saying, hey, I got a plan that the Moabitess has to have a little faith to say, hey, maybe somebody should be going out there and looking for some food is because she doesn't have bitterness. She's excited. She's glad to be in Israel in the house of bread. And so Ruth... um, proposes to glean. Now, in Leviticus 19, she already knows this. God God intended for the poor. There was no welfare. There's no, no public assistance back in those days. And so God said, in the law, you will not harvest all the way to the edges like some kind of greedy, shekel-pinching farmer. You will, penny pinching, shekel pinching, you know, just to the conversion. (laughs) You will leave the edges for people passing by on journeys, for poor people, you know. I don't want you to take all the olives. You are to leave, this is Leviticus, leave some olives. Why? There are poor people. Now, the landowners, it says in the commentaries, were unscrupulous and notoriously, uh, uh, un, this was unappealing to them. They resented. <laughs> you don't own it. You didn't work for it. You didn't, you know, what were you doing, you lazy bunch? Of, uh, yeah, right? And so you, you get to come in and just pick the olives that I don't So God said, to do it. It didn't mean everybody did it. And that's why they say, maybe I'll find favor because maybe somebody will actually cooperate with the law. Well, nobody's going to do it in the time of judges except maybe one God-fearing man. But can they ever meet? How is she ever going to find the right field? Do you, it's the house of bread, people. That's Bethlehem. They're famous for what? Bread. You know where bread comes from. And where do you have to grow wheat? In fields, right? So there's probably a lot of them. How is she ever going to pick the right one? Because guess what? Naomi can't direct her because all she's doing is singing, nobody knows (laughs) the troubles I've seen. So she can't even remember because she's all thinking about the list of all the things that have gone wrong that God let happen to me. I'll tell you what. All right, so sorry, I am a Jew. I can, I know how this goes. This way of thinking flows quite naturally. I grew up hearing it. Oy let me tell you what, all right? Listen, all right, I digress. Are you surprised? What? 
<laughs> it wasn't you, Marianne, this time. We have a new problem on row three. Ushers, clean up on row three. Okay, so Naomi says, go ahead, go ahead, my daughter, you know. Yeah, and it always, she's affectionate, she loves her. It's not that bitter, self-absorbed people don't love their family, it just, it paralyzes them. They're paralyzed because they're poisoned. So she says, go, you know, and as it turns out, you know, when I, this is how I manage. She's a foreigner. She doesn't know where to go. And there's fields everywhere. She goes down left, passes one. You know, that doesn't look so promising for whatever reason. She goes to another and she comes to the end of a road and there's three fields in front of her. One on the left, one in the center, one on the right. She's like, oh, and she stumbles into his field. Just so happens. In, in the Hebrew, it says, her chance chanced. Her, she happened to happen upon, in better English, Boaz field. So the readers would go, no way, right? No way. But the Jewish ones, you know, go, hallelujah, God is at work. Now, out of all the dozens of fields and all the dozens of neighborhoods and all, you, you know what? That started getting me to a quote from Casablanca. Now, I don't normally watch old movies unless Barb forces me to. Where is she? <laughs> well, Casablanca, World War II, uh, Humphrey Bogart's character owns a nightclub in Morocco, right? Well, you know, you know. And, and, and so he's playing the bartender there. He's in there, and in walks his ex-girl. <laughs> in Morocco, and he says, you know, he says, out of all the gin joints and all the towns in all the world, she walks into mine, right? And now his buddy turns and says to him, Humphrey, everything happens for a reason. <laughs> he, his friend doesn't do that, but he could have. No, listen, out of all the fields in the world and out of all the farmers she's going to meet, she just happens to walk into that. Now, believer, listen to me. Every twist, every turn, every detail of your life, your missteps, your insteps, your de-steps, your re-steps, your intentions, other people's actions upon your life, every single footstep under the almighty sway of God Almighty to prosper you, to redeem it, to make it the best. Now, let us rescue ourselves from this dreary, deterministic, static, joyless view that we are puppets on a string and God is the celestial puppeteer. To say that God is in charge of every random thing, which he is, is not to dismiss human free will or agency. Somehow, they work together. And when we get there, we'll be able to do that kind of theological trigonometry. But right now, 
We can't understand that. But let me give you a scripture, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, that has the dynamic and the tension here. He says, you are called and responsible to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working within you to do his good pleasure. You see? So I find it encouraging that God's in charge of the details because I have free will and I can kind of do a three-legged race with somebody who's in charge, whose heart is to bless. And so I don't want to give him any reasons to have to chastise me. I want to give him all the reasons why. Let's speed our way into blessing. And so there's, he gives you free will. You know, he gives you free will. Uh, can it be a little stunning when God starts to show just how much of control he is of random everything, uh, everyday choices? Let me give you an example. This is the eeriest one that I could find. I was at an open door church during one of our evening services there at Calvary Petaluma. We were renting their building, sitting next to me, a nice young man. He had four DUIs and he had... Uh, a sentence uh, uh, pending, thank you. And uh, he wanted prayer from me. And we became friends there. And I said, hey, let's have lunch and uh, I'll follow up. Yeah. So he skipped out on me, but you know, he let me standing there, sitting there for an hour and you know, all of that. And so about three days later, I run into him like this at the post office in Petaluma, like this, boom. You know, and, and, and he goes, oh, and I go, whoa, well, that's one way to meet, you know? Yeah, he goes, oh, sorry about that. You know, I don't know, I'm not doing so well, and I just kind of didn't want to talk to you, and I was like, yeah, you can call me, you know, next time. And so he goes, yeah, let's set a time to meet. So we did, and it happened again, and I ran into him at Costco, turning, turning around the corner, and I ran into him, and he goes, dude, are you following me, you know? <laughs> And I said, why would I be following you? I'm not, I, yeah, are you kidding me? And so we start talking, laughing, and all of this. Well, we still hadn't met. Now listen to this. One Sunday night, Barb had some women over. And I had to get lost for a couple hours. <laughs> so I had no clue what I was going to do. The sun was setting, and I thought, maybe I'll go out to, toward Samuel P. or the, the ocean or somewhere out there. So I went driving randomly. As I'm driving down, I think it's D Street. It's one of those letter streets. I'm going up over, right? And I see this sign, Helen Putnam Park. And my kids had just had a field trip there. And I remember them saying, oh, we were at Helen Putnam Park. And I'm like, I don't know where Helen Putnam Park is, you know, but I would like to know. And I tried, they tried to describe it to me, but I saw the sign and I literally went, Wah! just random, just like I want to go in there and see what the kid that's about. So I drive up and the sun is setting. There's no one in sight. There's no cars. And I get out. I get there like, whoa, this is Helen Putnam Park. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm in the parking lot. I open the door and I'm standing there. The wind is blowing and there's a tin plate going across the echoing. I just got spooked out. Like, okay, it's time to go now, you know? <laughs> 
But then I hear this little jingle, 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 jingle. Up on the hill, there's, there's somebody riding a bike, a, a, a mountain bike, right? And they're coming down, and I'm just standing there. The door's open. The car's running. I'm wanting to get out of there, right? And, and jingle, 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 the bike is coming toward me. It was only this big how far away it was. All the way coming toward me, and I'm just kind of waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting, and I'm in the parking lot, and the bike tire comes in between my legs. And I'm looking down between my feet, and I see the tire, and I look up, and he takes the helmet off. It's him. <laughs> it's him. And I start to kick. <laughs> what it must have went into to get him at that moment, on a bike, and me with the ladies and the car and the Helen Putnam Park sign and, and, and all of that, it's like, God, I just worshiped God. I worshiped God. And here's the deal. This is what I'm trying to get back around to. He never followed through. And that's the thing about deterministic thinking. We just think, well, you know, no, 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 no. He did all of that. And the guy used his free will and said, no, thank you. I don't want the wisdom. I don't want the advice. I don't want the discipleship. And he's free to do that. And God now is working the next best thing for this dude, according to his free will. So you got free will. Oh, you're not just, no, 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 no. He can lead the horse to water, but even God, even God cannot make the horse drink. He will not. You will drink of that living water on your own. He will not force it down your throat. And that is why, my friend, on that great and awful day, he will stand before people and say, your will, be done. Your will, not my will. You overrode the will of God that none perish, but all come to have the knowledge of the truth and be saved. So, therefore, my friends, oh, there's more mm, wiggle room than you think, even though it's controlled. <laughs> okay, <laughs> moving on, moving on. So, let's, we got to, we got to just jump. No matter where we were, I'm jumping ahead. 8 through 16. So Boaz says to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Oh, they're meeting. All right. Don't go and glean in anyone else's field. Don't leave this one. Stay here my, with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I have told those men not to lay a finger on you. And whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jugs. The men have filled at this. She bows down with her face to the ground and exclaims, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me a Moabite? Boaz replies, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law. I know all about you. I just didn't know you happened to be in my field. You know, everybody is a small town, woman. So uh, since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland, everybody's talking about this, and came to live with a people, God's people that you didn't know before. It goes on. 
May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by our God, the Lord, Yahweh. That's his name, Yahweh. The God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. She says, you've given me a lot of hope here. Comfort, you've spoken so kindly to your servant. Though I don't have the standing of one of your servant girls, I'm the daughter of a terrorist who hates you. At mealtime, Boaz says to her, come over here. Have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sits down with the harvesters, he offers her some roasted grain. She eats all she wants and has some leftovers too. As she gets up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his guys. Hey, listen, even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some of the stalks. Whoops, whoops, have a few accidents for her from the bundles. Make them generous too. And leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So we'll go back to the first paragraph there and walk our way through. Well, there's chemistry here. You know, there's something called the meat cute. Have you ever heard of that? In 1940, they came up in the movie television industry as uh, a term to describe when a future romantic couple uh, meets for the very first time. So that scene is called a meet-cute. In other words, the cute scene in which they meet. But for some reason, it's called the meet-cute. And here's the meet-cute. You know what I mean. I mean, you know, you're watching a movie and somebody calls out at Starbucks, you know, I've got a tall, extra hot soy latte. And then the camera pans in to two hands reaching for it at the same time and they sort of awkwardly touch and then they pull back and they realize and it's an attractive guy and an attractive girl and the violin goes, you know, (laughs) and and the guy goes, whoa, I've never known that somebody else likes tall, extra hot soy lattes. And she said, me either. Right, and so, and so they end up getting married and they tell that story for 45 years, right? And everyone has a meet cute thing. And sometimes it could be like silly or angry or hostile, but it's still the meet cute, right? And we, here's what we like about it. What we like about it is we sense there was a moment of destiny that what brought those two hands together over that extra hot, tall soy latte was more than the barista. That there might be a capital B barista out there somewhere, amen? So, so just as she's walking by the, the them and the shelter, he, he starts, you know, I, this is how I imagine it happening. You know, she's in the shelter she closes her eyes. Her face is sweaty and dirty. Here's the meat cute, right? Albeit beautiful. She's beautiful. The language gives it away. Um, she clear, he clears his throat. He goes into the shelter after her, you know, and he, uh, she opens her eyes, and there he is, Mr. Dashing, Prince Charming, you know? He owns the place, and he's 
bright eyes and warm smile and, 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 and no wedding band, you know? And so uh, speaks to her in soothing tones, my daughter. What does he say, my daughter? Yes, he's 15 years older than her. But you know what? My daughter, that's how God-fearing men think of younger women, paternally, not ex- as a, exploitively. That's a God-fearing man. Thinks of women that they're viewing on the screens as somebody's little girl, daughter. Oh, that changes everything. And so the good report, the good reputation, the hardworking, devoted, loyal to this person who belongs to the people of God. He knows the whole story. Like I said, he just didn't know she happened to come into his field. So the, look at his concerns. Look at, so, so by the way, we're in the conversation. We've left the coincidence for the conversation. And here it starts. He says, first of all, and it's so fitting because Boaz is a Christ figure, right? Listen, listen to Boaz with your heart because he's your Boaz. It's your Jesus. He's the Lord of the harvest. He's the one directing your lives. And here's his concerns. Number one, my child, listen to me. Don't stray from me. Don't stray from my fields. Don't stray from my people. Don't stray from my property. Because out there, back where you're from, don't go back there. Don't go outside my parameters of the gospel. Because it's a dog-eat-dog world out there. You could get hurt. So number one is, is Boaz's concern for her safety. And that's the Lord of the harvest concern, number one, that we are not in harm's way. And so he says, I'm also concerned that you're well provided for. He says, whenever you're thirsty, refresh yourself with sweet, cold water, well water that my guys will provide you. Well, this is going to make her bow her face to the ground. Why? It's strikingly unusual at 1100 BC, to say the least. Listen, uh, usually... Women fill the water jars. Usually women serve the men. And not only is she a woman, but she's an accursed Moabitess woman. She's a Moabitess, 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 Moabitess. Yeah, it's hard to say if you say it like that. She's excluded. She's estranged. Without God and without hope in this world. And... He's going to serve her. The men are going to serve her. You're providing for me. What's going on here? What's going on here? Well, Boaz is like Jesus. I can't tell you how like Jesus he is, but I'll save that for chapter four. But he's like the Lord. The Lord meets a woman, another foreigner. She's a Samaritan. John chapter four. And, and, and she wants to know, too, what, what are you talking to me for? You're a Jew. You're a guy. I'm a woman. Not only am I a woman, I'm a despised Samaritan woman. We built our own temple. We're doing our own thing. We hate you guys. And you, you don't care too much for us, you Jews. 
What are you even, what are you being so nice to me for? Same reason, Boaz, same reason Jesus pays attention. Because he cares that you're protected and he cares that you're well nourished and provide for water, refreshment. And Jesus is going to say, it's not just that your tummy's going to be full and that your thirst be satiated. It's that your thirst for life and love and meaning and fit and usefulness is filled because those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, they shall be filled. So that's what is happening here, that the details of our lives have an overarching theme that you be out of harm's way and that your soul be satisfied and content with the purposes and presence of God for your good and his glory. Those are the two things always working in the providential care of God. And that explains a lot. And so we move on. And so uh, the answer is, she says, well, he says, well, I'll tell you. You know, you used to be a Moabitess. Yeah, you were a foreigner. You've come out of that land. But I've been told there's been a change of heart. Because you may have... <laughs> Checked with Ancestry.com and found out, guess what? You are a Moabite, but guess what? You're not acting like a traditional Moabite. Where's the suicide bombs? You know, where, 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 (laughs) where's the language? Where's the hatred? Where's the hostility? Instead, you love the God of Israel. You love a person who belongs to his people. You're devoted to her. You're caring. You've left. You've turned. You've had a metanoeo in the Greek. You've turned around. You've turned around. Therefore, when you turn around and you take an inch in the right direction, God will just pour out a mile of blessing. And that's really what's happening here. He goes on, you know, so they have the afternoon. Uh, one eye is on the work and one eye is on each other and the music is playing and all of that. So the shofar sounds, there's lunch and so it goes on. He, he says, come to my table. What? Come on, am I dreaming? I'm a Moabitess. What am I doing here? And that's what, what we think. You know, a total sinner, totally depraved, totally estranged by our own sins. And he says, I want you at my table. Hey, look at this bread. Dip it in the wine vinegar and boy, and the roasted grain. And she started to loosen up. She's like, wow. And she starts eating as much as she wants. And wow, that's amazing that that's our Boaz. And he throws in this, I'm the bread of heaven. You want to dip some bread? He goes, I'm the bread that if you eat of me and the work that I did on the cross for you, you will live forever and you'll have life that's truly life indeed. And so Boaz, now as we jump into the last paragraph to finish really quickly, Boaz gives orders to make her life even uh, sweeter, right? So he says in 15 and 16 there, uh, let her her glean... Don't force her to run after everything. Oh, did you drop something? Did you drop? I'm so poor and I'm so destitute. Oh, oh, oh the little scrap is there. She, he goes, have some divinely intentioned accidents, happy accidents. Whoops, whoops, we're leaving all of this behind. I don't know how clumsy I am today. And so she doesn't have to just be embarrassed because God 
cares about covering our shame. In fact, he makes it part of the gospel. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall not be put to shame because it's one of our greatest fears. That's one that we'd be exposed. He says, I've got to cover that. And here you see he does it so wonderfully. So wonderfully indeed. So Boaz gives orders to make her life um, so much easier. And, and, and by the way, <laughs> she receives all of that. One writer said, and by the way, no Christian has ever earned one dollar in their entire lives that wasn't laid out by the mercy of heaven and placed, whoops, right in front of you for gathering. And maybe you gathered really hard and we're all really proud of you, but not one red cent in your checking, savings, IRAs, and whatever you have was ever you earning it, but you receiving and working hard to gather up what was already, whoops, laid that all in front of you. I hope you find it. And you did. And the only reason why you found it were the happy, random coincidences that led you there. And that is why, my friends, you can look at the money in your portfolio as belonging 100% to God. Because you belong 100% to God. The earth belongs 100% to God. Everything is his, including what he let you gather from his good mercies. Amen. Last paragraph. I better speed read. <laughs> so Ruth. Oh, we're okay. We got two minutes. <laughs> so Ruth. Ruth gleans in the field. She goes back to working like an animal. She threshes the barley. It comes out to about an ephah. She carries it back to town. Her mother-in-law sees how much she gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over. She had a little doggy bag. Wait, Mom, there's more. Uh, after she had eaten, verse 19, her mother-in-law asked, where, where did you glean today? Who did you work for? Blessed be the guy who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working, the name of the man I worked with today is Boaz. She said, the Lord bless that man. Naomi says to her daughter-in-law, he, God, has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She adds, this man is our close relative. Well, it, hello, you could have remembered that had you not been singing that song. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Then Ruth, the Moabitess said, he even said, mom, no, no, get a hold, listen to me. He even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. That's like a long time, mom. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls because in someone else's field, you might get harmed. So Ruth stays close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvest. And then this dynamic, wonderful, climactic ending. 
and she lived with her mother-in-law. Wow. <laughs> We're not going to end with that, all right? I mean, we are, but I, I'm going to just tell you something about that. Okay, so their, con their hopeful conclusion, I only can take a couple minutes here. So she finishes working, and she's going to go home and tell little Miss Bitterness that maybe it's a waste of time as a believer in the promised land to be in despair because God will always come through. That's the sting for her. All of this time in a dark room, making your list, it was all a waste of time because God, unbeknownst to you and your self-absorbed misery, had a blessing for you, woman. Oh, so Ruth takes the stacks of the stalks and she beats them out, that's called threshing, and separates the grain from the chaff and it comes out to an ephah of barley. I looked that up for you. I know you want these kinds of things. So it's a half to two-thirds of a bushel. <laughs> All right, moving on. No. <laughs> 29 to 50 pounds. Do you know how much a male worker got as payment? One pound. One pound. Jesus said to the guys on the boat, I know you fished all night, but you do things your way. You know, I'd like you to just try it my way. Try on the right side. Uh, we fished. You're like a, a preacher. You're a rabbi. <laughs> Our grandfather and his father before him, we're all fisher people. But because you seem to be stirring up a lot of things, yeah, we'll do it. Yeah? So we're going to do it your way. And when we do it his way, we get the 29 to 50 pound sack instead of the little one pound baggie, right? That's how he is. And so she wants to go home and she's doing the little girl, the girl thing. I'm sorry, ladies. Listen, you've got a thing about you. And we love you. We don't understand you. All right. So she goes home to mama and she's doing this. Ruth, you know, Ruth is going, Naomi, Naomi, Naomi. What is this? I don't understand what that is, girls. What, you got to nail, nails, you're happy, you're, what, I don't, can someone just, uh, uh, never, I've got, I'm married to your species, I'll ask her. Okay, so she's like, oh, and, you know, and, and, and she's all confused, where did you glean, where did you work, who's a, who, what, where, how, why, whoever it is, God bless him, and then she remembers, and then look at this, the suspense here, the name of the man. Uh, you think it's by accident, it's the last word in the sentence, we're all wrong. The man's name I worked with today just happens to be Boaz. And Naomi says, it's not in your text, but she says, shut up. <laughs> she says, he is a relative. He's like, where was I thinking? Well, we know where you were thinking. You were listing all the reasons God hates you and has left you. So no wonder you can't remember there's a way out because you've already said, listen, he's shown kindness to the living and the dead. Oy vey. Listen, look, it's seeping in even to praise to God. She already considered herself dead. So she says, oh, he's, I see that he's still interested in dead people like Ma, you know? Oh, come on. Yeah, and so, yeah, he is interested in you. And there's no reason to ever be in despair because to, to despair 
is to turn your back on God. So Naomi had sadly given up, but there's no reason to give up. And so she says, he's one of the kinsmen redeemers. Real quick, kinsman redeemer. Relative. Rescuer. One guy in the clan who was the wealthiest, most stable, was designated with the responsibility, if something goes bad with our last name, he will gladly step in and save the day. Danger, a threat, trouble, a need, he's the dude. And it's written in the law. And so wouldn't that be nice to have a, somebody like that in your family, right? Huh. Guess what? You do. Jesus called our brother, our older brother, who stepped into human, the human race through the womb of one of us. His father incarnated him in there, but he's one of us to save us. He's a redeemer. He rescued us and redeems us. So in closing, uh, Ruth continues to bubble up the details. She says, hey, he wants me to be in the field with him until harvest, you know? It's just that one fluke, one day thing, mom. I mean, all the way. And catch this. Oh, this is, I bet you didn't see this. This is a lesson that she's starting to come to life, this little Miss Bitter. She's saying, yes, that's a good idea. Don't go anywhere else. I don't care if it looks greener on the other side or looks better, or looks fuller, looks like maybe somebody said something or invited you over. Don't leave that property because she's learning. She threw her whole life away by going outside the promises to a land of the enemy, trying to get what only God could give. So she said, oh, I learned this one the hard way. Stick there no matter what. So here, as we finish up, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side until you find out it was a devil, the devil's lie to lure you away from God's blessing and destroy you with a nasty counterfeit. So here we go, finish. Talk about, about the most anti-climatic end. Well, little did you know, I'm going to tell you. The mother-in-law, who's used to be passive, right? She's not passive anymore. Here's what happens. She becomes very involved. She, 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 she tells her this. Listen, I want you to get dressed up tonight. It's going down tonight. All right, here's the plan. Get dressed up. Take a bath. Use some perfume. Oh, you know that dress? Oh, that dress. That, you, that dress. You know the dress. I want you to put that dress on. And, 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 and what she says next will astound you. Let me, I'm going to put it up there for you. To be continued. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.